Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. So please bear with us as we use microphones only eight feet from you, but it's being <laughs> recorded as a podcast. So thank you so much for coming. My name is Emily Howe. I also go by Family. I'm a management consultant and I help companies, especially male majority companies with gender inclusion. So I do a lot of work in tech, law, finance, uh, science, et cetera. Um, under the rubric of our conversation today, I'll let you know that I'm 40 and I am a millennial, although uh, my sister, who's also on the panel, likes to call me an elder millennial. <laughs> and so uh, there's that. So today's topic is intergenerational executive women talk success, age and empowerment. I also want to thank the Commonwealth Club for letting us have our first executive women's forum right here in this room. Um, they're having an event afterwards. So if you see an empty seat next to you, that's why, uh, we're actually, oh, we're actually sold out for this event right now for the amount of people that we are having come in. So, yes. So I'm so excited. Thank you so much for coming. It, um, it shows me that my hunch that executive and ambitious women in the Bay want, want, want to talk about it, uh, is true. So thank you for coming. So I thought of this topic, age and generation, uh, off the bat, because I, Take a, I spend a lot of time looking at the research on what makes women successful in the workplace. And I coach and work with a lot of executive women who are of all different generations. And so I've been seeing a few things in each of the generations that I just want to kick off with and uh, to start our conversation. And then we'll, we'll introduce you and get into the meat of it. So I think a lot about trailblazing women. They're the women from the greatest generation, the silent generation, and the boomer generation. Um, for example, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's on my earrings today. She's from the uh, silent generation. Uh, and so they prove to, to th those of us within that generation without that women could do it. Women could be doctors. Women could be lawyers, right? Things that we take for granted today, but that if they hadn't been coming along, then maybe we wouldn't know that. Um, and so they often worked in highly masculine cultures where there wasn't a lot of room to pull up other women behind them. Most of them did try to do that, but it, there wasn't a lot of wiggle room there. They were, um, so much under the eye of everyone around them who, who were men in the workplace. And they also had to put up with a lot of sexual harassment to, that today we definitely don't take for granted as a necessary part of the workplace. Um, so building on that. I've been thinking a lot about Gen X. I read Lean In from Sheryl Sandberg. Um, as I'm, how many of you have read Lean In? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so that, so we're now six years later from Lean In and the research is showing that women are leaning in. We are sitting at the table negotiating for, uh, for wages at the same rate as the men and as we're asking for as much money as the men are asking for, um, we're negotiating for, we're asking for promotions. We're staying in the workforce almost as much as our male colleagues are. So um, there are differences when we ask for the, when we ask for the promotions and the higher salaries, there are differences between women in how that's received and also between men and women in terms of how that's received. But we are asking at the same rates as men. What this um, makes me see is that Women are leaning in, and the answer to women's progress is not that we need to take thousands more leadership courses or lean in more. We're already leaning in. Just keep doing that. The real uh, nut to crack here is having companies 
um, companies and men need to work alongside women. So companies need to set the kinds of policies that support women in the workplace. And men, if they have a female in their life, any woman in their life, need to lean in on the home front in terms of home and family. So those are the two things that research shows are next in terms of women's success in the workplace. So I also am seeing we're going down in the generations. Millennials and Gen Z are redefining success in general and all together. So they're looking at companies and seeing that the pay gap's not going to end for 200 years. And millennial women are saying, that's not fast enough. (laughs) I'm going to work on it. And I'm going to excuse myself from the corporate sphere. And I'm going to go start all these entrepreneurial ventures. So that's a pattern that we're definitely seeing. They're also saying to the trailblazer trailblazer generations, I see that you worked really hard from day one, right after college, et cetera, and climbed right up to the C-suite. And I don't know if working through bro cultures is my hashtag best life. I'm going to think outside of that box. And then the last generation that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of success are teen girls and college women who definitely know they don't need to go through the sexual harassment that the trailblazers had to, and that even in my generation we have had to and still have to. Um, And then we also see a gender gap in that generation where far fewer teenage girls, and I'm sure Linda, you'll talk about this, are interested in STEM. So 11% of teenage girls compared to 36% of teenage girls. So um, those are my initial thoughts before we dig into this conversation. Um, I have brought three of the most fascinating minds that I could possibly find or know of on these issues. And I'm super excited to learn because I've now told you everything I know about age and gender. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to let them introduce themselves in a couple speedy lines before we turn into the conversation. Got it. Thank you. Um, When women first started coming into the workforce, and so you might imagine that the population I worked with wasn't very large during that period of time, Um, but the support was was very important because women were coming into an environment that was um, not very welcoming or supportive. Linda? (laughs) Thank you. Okay, I guess mine is working. I'm Linda Calhoun, and I'm the founder and executive producer of CareerGirls.org. And we are a free career exploration and readiness website. We are a platform for um, over 600 and counting very diverse and accomplished women role models who talk about what they do, how they got there, but most importantly, what girls, and we target girls ages 10 to 13, need to do to create a career of their dreams. We really work to close the imagination gap for girls of what's possible based on what you're passionate about and your level of educational attainment. So, you know, I get to be in a space where we're targeting girls um, ages 10 to 13. And from our analytics, we know that 47% of our audience visitors to our website are age 13 to 24. And then the women that we interview are diverse in every way, age, ethnicity, where they are in their career trajectory. So it's been uh, an extraordinary ride interviewing these 600 plus women. And those translate into about 11,000 individual video clips of first women narratives um, in the workplace. So I'll leave it at that. 
Great. I'm Mags, and I believe that the world can be a much more compassionate and collaborative place. And I know that more women in power is the key to that. So my superpower is powering women up. And right now I create digital content on Instagram for Rebel Moms. And I also work one-on-one with women to help remove energy and mindset blocks so that they can find their most powerful self. And you can find me on Instagram at Happy Millennial Mags. Thank you. And if we could just go down the line and mention either age or generation so that we're clear where the standpoint we're coming from. That'd be helpful. All right. Um, I didn't mention my website. It's a time of my own dot com. And I'm 68 years old. I am a baby boomer. So um, I am 60 years old and I'm a baby boomer. And um, it's been interesting to see, you know, coming in at the tail end of baby boomers and seeing Gen X, Y, and Z. Uh, I'm Mags. I'm 34, and I'm a millennial, a proud millennial. <laughs> We've been hiding in the in the corners when everyone made fun of us, but we're here now. <laughs> a third of the workplace, right? Almost half. Almost half. Okay, great. Um, okay, so at most panels, if you've been there, I now would be asking questions, and you're like, "When do I get to ask my questions?" So we're going to actually flip that. We're in SF, so we're going to disrupt this. We're going to ha- take three questions from the audience now up front, so that if you have a burning, juicy question, or even one you just want to get off your chest, let's ask three questions from the audience before we go into the panelist questions. Yeah. All right. I saw yours first. Oh. Hi, I'm Stephanie O'Dell, and I have a website called Celebrate the Gray. And I'm trying to change the face of aging for the 50-plus woman in marketing and media. So I am um, wondering what your thoughts are. The demographic is huge, and we're living longer, so we're going to be in the workforce longer. And so do you feel that marketing and media, if if it was more normalized in marketing and media, we saw aging, women would embrace aging in a different way. Thank you. Um, I applaud you, and I will get your business card before we leave the room today. Um, Ageism is rampant, and ageism not only impacts um, women of our age, but it also, it, it goes down. You know, there are people who think that there are women too young to do certain things. But ageism, for the most part, is centered around the mature woman who is seen as someone who is unseen and, for the most part, irrelevant. And so there's a lot of conversation these days about reimagining aging. Um, A lot of people are working on ageism. I work with ageism a lot with my clients. Um, And uh, a very important subspecies of ageism for women is menopause, perimenopause, and how that impacts a woman's career trajectory. And what I would say, you know, with the women that we interview, as I said, they, they really run the gamut in terms of where they are in their career. You know, it's trite, but it's true. I mean, knowledge is power. Um, in the interviews that we do with these women, they are sharing um, their wisdom on navigating the workplace, 
navigating in life, understanding the importance of negotiation. Um, They do not take no for an answer. Um, And they are sharing behaviors that help them be successful in many times very hostile male-dominated environments where they really didn't have a lot of um, women who were trailblazers making the way for them. And, um, you know, the thing that that comes through over and over again is um, the importance of financial literacy understanding the market forces at play um, in the workplace, understanding their value, understanding their worth, and, um, you know, never underestimating that side hustle so that you're not (laughs) dependent upon any one source um, for your income, survival, and well-being. Yeah, and I just want to touch on the the media aspect of what you were talking about. Um, so my story is I saw one type of body growing up that was glamorized. And I started dieting when I was 12, when I realized that someone in my middle school was only eating a Tootsie Roll for the day because she wanted a bikini body. And I was like, maybe I should diet too. And thus... 20 boxes of Snackwell's cookies a day for the next <laughs> 15 years or something. I just wanted to get that body. And so that was a big a big struggle for me and a big thing that I overcame in my late 20s. And so um, I was 27 and I finally fell in love with my body. I was done dieting. I was like just totally in love with this. And an hour later, I, not, I kid you not, one hour later, I go to the bathroom and I look in the mirror and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a wrinkle. <laughs> and it's like, I did not unwind all of this media imprinted bullshit just so I can start hating my body and hating my face and hating myself again in the mirror for the next 100 years, right? So um, we were talking earlier also how much representation matters. So when I see a 50-year-old man and a 50-year-old woman on the cover of a magazine and the 50-year-old man is allowed to have wrinkles and the 50-year-old woman is not, that's what's showing. That's the message that we keep receiving. So I'm working very hard to show my wrinkles and let them come in and know that every time a new wrinkle comes in, it's knowledge, it's growth, it's experience, it's pain that I've moved through and it's part of me. And I'm not getting any fewer. Every single day, they're coming, right? My husband and I were talking last night and it's like, they're coming. Let's just welcome them. Let's just enjoy aging. We have two options. We can look in the mirror and hate our wrinkles and be mad every single day for the rest of our life. Or we can look in the mirror and focus on anything else. And so we choose the latter. I want to make just a quick comment on gendered ageism. Mm -hmm. Men grow distinguished. Women grow old. And so gendered ageism in our culture is is enormous. I just want to say one thing about the media. I've recently found these people to follow on Instagram that are all about growing their hair out silver and like totally embracing the gray. And I'm loving it. And just it changed something a thousand percent inside me when I see these women with silver hair, because I'd never seen a woman who was rocking her sexuality and her hotness and her, I'm going to have fun in a dressness with silver hair before. So, I mean, it really, it matters a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think, did I see a question over here? Yeah. Hi, my name is Diana Lai. Um, I have a question. I know um, this was brought up earlier that like now women are asking for more money and asking, you know, for a place at the table. Uh, What I've actually encountered is the backlash from men. How do you get men to lean in? Because when we say things like, well, you know, 
for example, if I if I look at a resume, if I look at a job description, I make sure that I hit every single one before I apply, whereas men would maybe hit half of it. So when I brought that up as a point of discussion, actually over the weekend, what happened shocked me because it was the backlash and the anger and the resentment for asking for more. How do you get men to respond? Um, And how do you get them to understand that doing this is actually for the better of all society, even if it feels like discrimination against them? Well, you know, it's interesting when I've done career fairs and um, exhibited about career girls, I can't tell you the number of dads that bring their uh, young children over to me and they're like, these are engineers. Oh, I'm going to make sure that my daughter tonight when we go home, we're going to look at, you know, careers in engineering or STEM and the other fields. So I think, you know... When men aren't threatened, um, it's easier, you know, because these dads are like trying to make sure that their daughters aren't vulnerable and able to take care of themselves. Um, So I think as it gets older and it's just competition, you know, who's going to get that job, who's going to get that promotion, um, then there, there definitely are serious headwinds. But, you know, in my life, in my experience, it's like, well, if the competition is about who has the best idea and who is going to work the hardest to make it happen, I'll take that any day. Could you tell me a little bit more about the form of the backlash, who it was from? Uh, it was from a friend of a friend, and um, I had actually never met him before. But um, so when I brought up the example about I knew somebody who had applied for a job um, who wasn't qualified for it, after a while he was starting to take it as I, as if I was telling him, you're not qualified for a job. Mm-hmm. It suddenly mm-hmm. become personalized mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't intending um, and I think it was, uh, for me, it was understanding how my messaging was coming across too. Mm-hmm. But then I've seen that in a number of different ways, is that instead of thinking that the more applicants that you get, the better the pool is, rather than, oh, you know, you're taking away my advantage, therefore I'm being discriminated against. And then there comes the backlash and the anger right. that I've seen. And it wasn't something I thought about until recently. So. Mm-hmm. And, and the workplace is very competitive, I mean, there are a lot of people out there looking for jobs. In this particular instance, it was about him, yeah. mm-hmm. not about you. And, and so take some solace in that, that unfortunately you ended up in a conversation with an individual who uh, was having a difficult time with his own self-concept. The other thing that's happening is that the more powerful women get, the more some men are threatened. Uh, that somehow women are going to take something away from men, that it's a zero-sum game, um, which is a male style of thinking more so than, than women think. Um, and it's, it's a lot of just make sure that you feel confident and competent when you're asking for a raise. 
Yeah. And, and really along those lines, I've found recently that I do not thrive in an environment where I have to defend myself against people who are never going to see it my way. It just beats down my soul. <laughs> um, so I know that I have to avoid, you know, that type of party talk, or if that type of conversation is coming up, like it is not my place in this moment to change every one of those people's minds. That's not where I thrive. And so that's where I kind of have to stay away from that. The thing that matters is when you're in the room asking for the raise, what's happening between you and just as much as you can stay in your lane, stay focused. When men or people are saying things, the moment that you take that and think maybe I should, that's when you take, you give away your power. So keeping your blinders up and knowing that whatever they're saying is a total projection of how they're feeling and insecure is how often people are feeling when someone else is coming to power and just know that it's not about your journey. It's about what they have going on inside. So just keep moving forward. And just one remark on that, because I, I work with tech, male tech leadership a lot. And so I encountered gentlemen like the one you're just mentioning. And so uh, we have been trying to change men's hearts and minds for a really long time. And we can't wait for that. Like it's not going to happen soon enough. So that's why I use numbers. So, um, if you read McKinsey's report on women in the workplace, it has numbers about every year it comes out, it has numbers about everything that's going on with women in the workplace. Um, and so having those kinds of numbers, you don't have to get into the, like I, someone I know applied and they didn't get it or they did. You can just go, you can just go back to the numbers and then walk away and hang out with people who are more like-minded because, um, changing one person's mind at a party, it can be so deeply stressful that then it's still, it's still lingering with you. Right. Um, so I think the numbers are the thing that talks a lot of times with these, with these, um, with these gents, even the ones who are like, in the tech world, I'm speaking with two kinds of uh, two kinds of men in leadership. Ones who really want to do the right thing, they just don't know what the right thing is. So then I go in and help them with that. And then there are some that are more hostile to it. And so that's where numbers works for both for both parties. Yeah. <laughs> and I here's my here's my third question. Actually, sorry. Thank yeah, thank you for that last point, because I, too, think that we should stop thinking we're going to make a difference by changing men's hearts and minds, because we've been trying to do this for 45 years, and initially it seemed promising, and here we are. So we really even have to look back at Lean In, um, the idea that Sheryl Sandberg turned it into a posture problem, rather than something that she is the most probably prominent and powerful executive at a company that was among the worst at supporting women in everything from how they dealt with their home and personal lives to how they were handled right in the workplace. So I think we have to get back to making this a requirement. And part of the reason I think that is because you're talking about young men who were raised by mothers who were working and facing all these problems and they still don't get it. So how we're going to expect their fathers and grandfathers, and you look at, you know, every new class of everyone from investment bankers to the lawyers who make partners at firms and every other place, even here, even in the Bay Area. So back to what really, we really can do about it, and it's to make it happen. And it's by electing people, not just women, but people who see this and who will make it very uncomfortable and unprofitable and maybe even illegal to keep doing things the way that we're doing things. Okay, I'll let you have your question. It, it fits in really well, I promise. 
Uh, so my question is, um, do each of you have an example of a policy that a company has put in place to help combat some of these problems? So along those lines is like, let's make it happen. Well, what what are some examples of company policies that you've seen work? And then maybe a little on how did how did that happen? Like, how did you sell it to how did that company in, instill it? Yeah, one um, one that I'm really close to recently is um, paternity leave. So when we had our daughter two years ago, I was working at a nonprofit, and I got um, I got to keep my job for taking 12 weeks off with no pay. Um, and he was at a startup, and he got four months full pay, um, which was amazing, right? Amazing. So um, as much as I put my boots in the ground and tried to get the get things to change at the organization I was at, it was more of a culture shift of a startup and the culture at the startup that was important for them um, to provide that for their families. But it was a new company, a fresh company. So I know you'll have some more info about uh, diving into that, but there are some things that are that are changing. And so it was for both genders for the paternity leave. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, an example that I'm familiar with, one of my volunteer activities is I serve on the board of the Friends of the Commission of the Status of Women, thanks to Barbara. Um alerting me of that organization. And uh, they recognize workplaces that strive for gender equity. And one example that comes to mind is The Gap. Um, That company was started uh, by uh, Doris and Don Fisher. They equally um, invested, I think, $10,000 each to start The Gap. And um, they regularly monitor, you know, what does the position pay and where um, and, and look for discrepancies based on gender to, to equalize them. Um, and they also look at promotions. So that's one company and one method that they do. Um, I think we're all familiar with Salesforce and the fact that they've done a lot of work in terms of looking at um, pay parity. Um, by position and making sure um, that for people who there is no other reason other than gender for the discrepancy, um, correcting for that. Uh, Salesforce was one that came to mind for me. Am I, am I on here? Yeah, I think so. Um, the thing that comes to my mind is uh, a UK experience. And that is, there's a consultancy, actually there are a few at this point, consultancies in the United Kingdom uh, that are creating the opportunity for companies to be trained in developing a menopause policy, which addresses ageism in the context of the company. They've been doing that now for three years. And menopause is just beginning to be discussed in the American culture. I've been doing research on it for over a decade. Last December was the first time I saw frequent mention in in the US media. Um, And so I'm going to that UK model where they have trained um, over 100 companies, this one particular consultancy, and there are a few in the company, to develop a a friendly menopause policy, which provides a more supportive environment for the mature woman. Great. I'm going to, I'll just rattle off some concrete tips because I I know you're... um I can't leave without telling you these ones. So the research says that the place that the needle is moved the most in terms of work on women in the workplace is at the recruiting end and in terms of promotions. So two concrete things you can do there is recruiting, 
get your um, hiring committees to not stop searching until there's two highly qualified women in the pool. Because when there's only one woman in the pool, there's statistically no chance. It's like 0.0001. So no chance she'll be hired if it's one in if if there's one woman in the pool, but if there's two, it works for underrepresented minorities also. So that literally changes the scene. The reverse is not true. If there's a bunch of women and then a man in the pool, he still has just as good a shot of getting in. So (laughs) there's that. So for promotions, um, we're in the Bay area. And the good news about that is most managers in the Bay area don't would be horrified if they knew they were discriminating or over promoting men and under promoting women. So for those managers, you can just, you can get, you can push on your HR department to show the data to the managers on the rates that they're promoting men and women. And while they're crunching that data, they should crunch it in terms of people of color and white people too. Um, Cause that seeing the data about how you're promoting one kind of person over another changes most people into being more conscious about it and making a change. Um, let's see. So I also recommend if you look at your leadership right now and it's all, all men, all white men, et cetera, all white and Asian men, if it, if it's tech, um, then what you can do is you can't just wait for those folks to get a new job or leave. That's, it could be like 15 years until you could have a more diverse group of leadership. So that's not the answer. We are not waiting for this progress. So I suggest that they do an advisory board. And so for any meeting, that's not super critical, super secret, they invite in different brains in the room. So for one team, it could mean that they need more creatives. It could mean that they need more people of color. It could mean that they need more international folks, folks, more women. It probably means They need a lot of those kinds of people, someone who's come from the nonprofit space. So just getting more brains in the room, everyone knows that different getting more brains in the room is better for innovation and creativity. So that's something you can do right away. I've had success helping companies do that. And then the biggest thing for moms, making sure that uh, people, women are not put on a mommy track when they go out and have a baby and then come back and still want to be on the same career trajectory. uh, There's, Push your HR to make an enterprise-wide, so a company-wide policy where women who are going to go out on maternity leave have to do a career planning session before and after. It makes leaps and bounds of change within people's minds because with that, someone's manager hears from them both before they go out and after, I'm still interested in being partner. I'm still interested in being partner. We shouldn't have to say that. Like people can have a family and a job and a high aspiration, but we do need to say that because if you don't say that, a lot of times people track you off. So those are, those are some concrete things. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, okay, so I have a few quick questions, and then I will return to, com- to company questions from the crowd. Okay, so... I'm interested in defining success differently throughout the generations. Have you noticed that yourself as a person in a generation or the folks that you work with define success in a certain way that's different from other generations? Or what would you have to say about that? Well, from the work that I do, um, I I think for myself and other uh, baby boomers, um, this notion of legacy 
Um, you know, I remember seeing an interview with Reese Witherspoon right after she won her Oscar for Walk the Line. And she said that um, June Carter Cash had this um, saying, she's just trying to matter. And um, I, I think that's something that's, that resonates. I know with myself, I want to leave things better than I found them. And a lot of the women that I get to work with, they feel that same way. Um, you know, I think previous generations, you know, your success was defined through your progeny, you know, how well your children did, did they turn out okay? Um, you know, myself and a lot of my friends, you know, who don't have children, that's, that's not, um, what our focus is on our child. Mm -hmm. It's making sure that everybody's child gets to benefit from a world that is vastly improved than the ones the one that we were all born into. And so I, I think success um, is defined in that way. What are you doing mm -hmm. so that your life mattered mm -hmm. and that you're leaving things better than you found them? Mm -hmm. And, you know, probably in previous generations, it was, you know, how well your children turned out and how much money you made. That's fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I recently actually just had a really big switch in how I found um, success. So I was working in the nonprofit world on the C-suite track. I did the mommy check-in before and after maternity leave and said, I'm still going. Um, and then I was offered the chief of staff role, which had been my dream role. And in that moment, in the president's office of the organization, I just like this feeling came over me that I could not ignore that this was not the path for me. Um, and I left the next day <laughs> um, and started trying to find this sweet spot, which I talk with lots of millennials about now, finding the sweet spot in your own personal success, which feels good to you, which is your strengths, which really gets you up and out of bed in the morning and where you can have the biggest impact in the world where you see fit. Um, I think a lot of people have this overwhelm of like, I have to help every cause and do everything in order to make a mark. But really, the more niche or the more zoned in you are on the thing that you're the most passionate about and the most skilled at doing, that's where you can really make a difference. And so um, I think having access to technology from a younger age has really helped millennials know that we can spread beyond the cubicles and get our message out in different ways. So redefining um, that in order to match our own personal success. Mm, thank you. I've seen a real shift in uh, definitions of success over the, the many decades that I've been working with women in the workplace. And it was earlier on very much about, um, can I keep my job? Um, and can I keep my job, do a good job, uh, move up in the ranks a little bit? Uh, can I take good care of my family? And these days, and I think some of it has to do with the global reality, um, people are looking at, um, am I a good member of my community? Am I a good shepherd? Mm. And, and it really does feed back to um, what both of you have been saying about, I want to contribute to making the world a better place. 
in terms of developmental psychology, as, as adults, we go through five very specific stages of development. And, and the more mature a person gets, uh, and particularly for women who have had children and now the children are, are out of the nest, that energy, that nurturing energy that is very much a part of, of who women are, gets spread out to the community and and really how can I help to make the world a better place and so um, for me success is um, can I do the best I can for my clients can I be a good role model for a mature woman um, can I help women who are coming through the process of, of maturing both in their career and in their lives to transition through things comfortably and smoothly the other thing is, for me personally, is my life uh, integrated well? Am I taking good care of myself? Am I being a good neighbor? Am I being a good friend? And, and if I wake up in the morning and have peace of mind, I feel like I'm living a successful life. I love it. I'm just looking at my questions. You have better questions than I have, so... <laughs> We're turning over to you. <laughs> Who else has a question? Okay, good. I know you've had your hand up. Thank you. Hi. Um, it's really more of a suggestion. So um, I work with an organization. It's all volunteer. And <clears throat> it's a STEM organization. I myself am an engineer that came up through the technical ranks and have lots of wild stories. As it's all true, pretty much. Um, so having said all that, this uh, group is called Women in Big Data, and we have it's 100% volunteer, and we've grown our organization now to over 10,000 women in five continents. Our most recent chapter we opened, which we're super proud of, is actually in South Africa. And so we have women data scientists in South Africa talking to women in Europe because they're in the same time zone, more or less. And But it's all kinds of roles as, as touch, touches tech. Um, so... My idea in listening to this fantastic audience is perhaps we could at least circulate a list of all these different organizations so we can check each other out and maybe connect. Like your, your organiza organization sounds super cool. All your organization sounds super cool. Um, I've created an event where parents did bring their girls to meet with uh, women that held different roles in tech. In other words, the point of the this uh, event was you don't just have to be an engineer. You can be a marketeer. You can be a salesperson. You can do biz dev. And so literally women showed up with their kids, and they were talking to these IBM execs, for example, going, how does my kid get a job at IBM? So I think it would be great if we coalesced this fantastic power. I think that's great. I'll grab a, p a paper and a pen and we'll put it outside the door. So if anyone has an organization that they think we would want to know about, which we probably would if it's coming to your mind right now, then I'll send it out an email afterwards to everyone who's at this event through the Eventbrite. Yeah, thank you. That's awesome. Let's see. Okay. Hi, uh, my name's Sarah. I'm a, a strategist and consultant. And um, my question's about emotional labor um, and all of the work that women do outside of their role of expertise um, and how I've even working for myself as an expert and coming in, I still find that I have to do all of these other 
things that have nothing to do with my expertise. Sometimes I end up doing project management or HR, all these different things. And I just wondered what different women's experience, all your experiences with that at different ages and how to combat that and just to be able to be more of just like a serious person, especially dealing with male CEOs. <laughs> there, there is an expectation um, and, and a very, very strong historical expectation that I think is shrinking a little bit as, as younger women come into the workforce, and that is that women will do the busy work. Um, there's an expectation that if there's coffee to be gotten, that the woman will get the coffee. If there is um, someone who needs some kind of insight or support about something, is having a difficult time about something, that the nurturing woman is going to be the woman to handle that. Um, if notes are to be taken, the woman is going to be more appropriate to that. And they'll have all kinds of reasons why that is. But it's just that, you know, you get to do the... the um, corporate housework. And I find that more women are passing up those opportunities uh, to do that, yeah. which is which is really we fabulous. <laughs> um, it's, uh, would you take notes? Um, no, I think I'm going to let somebody else do that this time. Like Harold or Bob or Joe. Exactly. <laughs> even if yeah. his handwriting is shit. Even <laughs> if, yeah, and even if they don't spell as well. Um <laughs> And, and so um, I encourage that kind of behavior to be able to say, you know, I'd love to, but I'm going to pass on that this time. And I got to say, you do not have to do it all. Being a leader is delegating. Um, being a leader is making sure that, you know, it, it's that old saying, you do not have to be the smartest person in the room. You just have to know that the smartest person in the room is in there doing the work that you need them to have done. Um, it's, it's so critical, you know, have your own personal board of directors. You know, I hear this over and over from the women that we interview. You just don't have to be the source of all the expertise that you need. Um, you form relationships, allies, and get that personal board of directors, people that you can go to for whatever subject matter expertise that you're looking for, and also for that emotional support that you need. It's, it's absolutely critical. Believe me, I, it was such a sea change to be in rooms with very powerful men and seeing how little they actually do. Yeah, I'm just going to follow that up with just say no to emotional labor. <laughs> um, and it's not easy the first time you're like, I'm not going to clean up those crackers. Like, it's hard. The first time you do anything out of your comfort zone when you've been uh, conditioned by the patriarchy your entire life is hard, but practice it. Emily and I live together and we practice saying things. We're like, we're going to be big girls and we're going to say this thing and we're going to stand up for ourselves. And we literally practice it. And it feels so stupid doing it to each other. But then when I am ready, that opportunity, the golden opportunity presents itself on a platter to me. I literally, the speech just falls out of my mouth. And along those lines, also, if you see that there's like a systemic thing, like after the director circle meeting, it's always the women that are cleaning up. Next time you come in there and say, hey, I noticed the same people. You don't even have to say women. The same people are doing the same things. Here, I'm starting a chart. This month, it's the marketing team that's doing the cleaning up. So just take it. If no one is owning that stuff, you can just own it and just start something like that so that it becomes a little bit more balanced. Mm -hmm. 
And, and just another uh, small note about it. Um, I will generalize from my own domestic experience uh, to other experiences. My husband is also my age. He grew up in an environment where when dinner was done, the women cleaned the table. And in any setting, whether I'm in my home or somebody else's home, I will pick a couple of things up and then I'll say to my husband, here, honey, grab this and bring it into the kitchen so that it, it gets him out of his stupor. <laughs> and, uh, and he recognizes, oh, I've got arms and legs. I can do this. And... Uh, it can happen in the workplace. You know, you're leaving the room. There's stuff to be cleaned up. Hey, Alan, you know, could you grab this and, and bring it wherever it needs to be brought? Um, so just invite male participation. You've probably heard that called office housework. I don't. Yeah. OK, so I also coach uh, my clients on this and mostly. I tell them, so the, the little one, the stuff that happens immediate, like here's a plate, here's a plate. But when someone's like, Hey, can you plan something like a conference or like, can you plan the meeting when all these other execs are coming in or something? The rubric that I have my clients use is, is it promotion worthy? Like, is this a thing I can put on my resume? Is this going to look good on LinkedIn? And we all like every gender, every person has to do some kind of non promotion worthy tasks, but it's definitely the rubric to filter through to see if you're going to do that. Okay, other questions? Let's see. Okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Meghna. I don't have a question. I have a thought, and I would like to hear your reactions around it. Um, I really appreciate these forums and your um, idea about documenting them and bringing those all together. But I came across this research that at workplace, men promote other men really well. Like in a meeting, they would support, they would have humor, they would have a lot of brotherhood kind of relationships and women don't do that really well, especially with other women. What do you think about it based on your interactions with other organizations, other leaders, and just a message for how can we really inspire others to do that? I'll speak a little bit to the legacy experience of that and then again update it. Um, when I first started working with women in the workforce, there were very few positions for women. And so there were a lot of sharp elbows um, because it was probably there were only one opportunity for a woman to get uh, an elevated position in a particular workplace. Uh, if you didn't get that position, if you allowed another woman to step into the limelight, um, you were going to lose out and the opportunity probably wouldn't come up again, uh, at least not in the near future. As time has moved forward, there are more opportunities for women. There are more uh, positions at higher levels. And there are more opportunities for women to collaborate and, and support each other in the context of women's organizations. I'll have to say, every time I've been to a women's conference, every time I've been in a conversation like this, your comment is made by someone that women need to start supporting each other. And, and it is important. It's important that we recognize that we are each other's allies and that we can and will pull each other up. And when we do that, the world will be a better place because there will be more feminine energy balancing out the masculine energy because there will be more viewpoints. There will be different kinds of expertise. 
And we're not in competition with each other the way that we used to be. And so I, I encourage you to share that thought broadly and liberally. I encourage each of you to think about who do I know? What woman do I know? Can I give a tip to? Can I give some support to? Can I reach out to? I've heard about a position in XYZ company. What woman can I tell about that possible position? And, and remind ourselves that the world is, is changing and we're going to be responsible for changing it. And, you know, just some practical advice. I was talking to a millennial woman in a tech company. Um, she creates, you know, when she's in these environments that aren't always supportive, um, prior to the start of a meeting, she makes a deal with another woman ally. When someone man speaks or says the exact same thing that you said, mm -hmm. I'm going to back you and say, well, she just said that two minutes ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it, it's explicit, it's planned, and, um, you know, it's, it's a buddy system. You know, we had it in college when you went to parties, right. you know, when you're in a hostile environment, you need someone who's looking out for you mm -hmm. and you're going to do the same for them. And so, um, you know, that's, that's something that's very practical. And then as Barbara was saying, you need to, you know, for everyone in the room who cares about it, you need to internalize it. You know, what are you able to do, able to control that's under your purview in terms of opening up opportunity and supporting other women. Mm -hmm. um, you're never going to lose by elevating someone and, and making sure that they're getting the recognition that they deserve. It, it doesn't diminish you in any way. That makes me think of my favorite GIF, which is um, the one where it's like a woman reaching down, pulling someone up, and then that person boosts her up. And so then the next person comes up and she boosts her up. It's just yeah. honestly a never-ending pipeline. There are so many of us. <laughs> like We can just all come together and boost each other up. And so while Emily is busy um, busting down the boys' club at their cocktail hours or wherever they go <laughs> and try to hide from us, um, I've been working with women and I created this quad model that I work with women either for women inside an organization or for women some, from separate organizations. And we come together each month and we share our successes. We say, oh my gosh, well, this person in this org is looking for someone for this promotion. And it's just all about spiraling up together. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I love it. Uh, I was just thinking about something else you can do is concretely when you, before you go to a networking thing like today or any other networking thing, whoever you're going with, ask them how you want how they want you to introduce them because maybe they are trying to angle themselves for a new job or maybe they are an emerging poet and they want that kind of thing to be their foot forward in that event. So knowing how to introduce people in their most powerful light based on where they're trying to head in their career, in their aspirations can be, can be really powerful and it can make sure that you're up to date on where your friends are heading also your colleagues and friends so that you can um, make sure to connect them up to. I would also say there's been so much emphasis in the world on women's connections with women. But as we know, as we look at all of the boards and who's in power, whether it's political or in companies, it's men. So while female mentoring is the best thing that's ever happened, the best thing for careers is actually having a male mentor. 
So I know this is a little countercultural, but the research backs it up by McKinsey that if you're just in a spiral with folks who don't have power, like that's the spiral you're going to be in. So go to women for emotional support, for strategic support, for bonding together within your company to like advocate for HR and to the CEOs to listen to you and get policy change. But in terms of advocating for your career, go find a male mentor. Also, the women at the top are so busy and so tapped by every woman in the company who wants them to be their mentor. Yeah. You've had your hand up for a long time. Thank you for your patience. Um, hi. So my question is related to the uh, the supports for women-founded businesses. So um, one of the questions we are, you know, circulating here is how to ask the male CEO to promote women. But what if we can grow more companies with women as a founder and CEO? And the question for that is about a month ago, right? New York Times has um, – article on all these re-entry program for women who left job for two years and plus. But many of these jobs are data entry, low level, right? So they can check the box. And for us to get to a leadership position from that point, it's going to, going to take us 10 years. But at the same time, many women who could not return to the job forces after taking this time off, they found their own business. I'm looking at the panel. Three of you have your own practices and business, but how do we support women founders to get to where they can be? There are uh, fortunately a lot of organizations, certainly in the Bay Area and nationwide, that support women founders. Um, and and I, I really encourage you to take advantage of those. You know, do a Google search or, you know, some other internet search for uh, women founders organizations. I find in the work that I do that uh, so many women are leaving the corporate environment in droves um, because it still is just an unfriendly place for women. And and women want to be the, they're the boss of themselves. They want to be able to not work night and day for somebody else's dream, but to work night and day for their own dream. And so I find, particularly as women go through the developmental stages, um, they, there's almost a tipping point of, all right, I'm ready to be out on my own. And and it's it's exciting and and it's women come up with the most amazing, the most wonderful uh opportunities for women. And and these days there are um more opportunities for women to get funding because women are funding other women. And that is getting incrementally um, and glacially better, but they're out there. And so if you're looking for um, women VCs or women uh, angel investors um, or groups that you can get together and brainstorm with other women who are, are desirous of creating their own thing, because you're right, if you start at as a data clerk uh, someplace, you're still going to be manifesting someone else's dream and not your own. Um, and I like women to dream big and, and act big. But as that data entry clerk, you're getting skills. I mean, one of the things, um, you know, for me, my first job out of college in the corporate world, I knew I wasn't going to stay there. Um, but what was critical for me was to get to amass 
as many skills as possible to understand um, how things worked so that I would be able to ultimately step out on my own and, you know, capitalize on the knowledge base that I had from working in organizations that I knew weren't going to promote me or, you know, propel me to senior levels of management there. Um, It was, well, what can I get from this? that I can then take into the marketplace to have other people pay me what I want to be paid to do it. So, mm-hmm. And kind of like similar to supporting each other within the same company with young founders. I also do quads for young founders, um, but to bring women together and find other, other people that are doing something similar, even if it's vastly different. Um, like if people are starting a company, whether it's a company for a nail salon and you want to do a tie-dye shop or whatever, just finding someone else who's doing that, that, who's been there, someone who's maybe four years down the road, but bringing yourselves together and getting out there. It's scary. You think, oh, people might not want to be my friend, but everyone's lonely at the top. (laughs) So get out there, reach out there and, and find your crew. I would not be able to do what I'm doing if I didn't have a network. And many of them are also just on Instagram. So (laughs) very millennial of me, I know, but you can find people that are not physically sitting next to you that can help support you in this also. Um, And then on the flip side of that, wherever you possibly can support women founders, buy your shoes from women companies, get your hair done by women-owned salons, buy coffee from women-owned coffee shops, mm-hmm. and promote about it. I mean, I have been searching Oakland women-owned businesses, and it's like I have to weave through garbage to find who they actually are, right? So if you buy a coffee from a women-owned coffee shop, put it on your Instagram, shout it to the world so that other people are like, oh, that's easy. I could go there instead of Starbucks. The more we share the things that we're already doing and how we're already supporting women, the more we inspire other women to do the same. Mm-hmm. I love it. Any final um, hurrah, encouraging statements for the audience following on mags? Any tips or final thoughts? Oh, you got to find that thing that you're passionate about. Yeah. That's how you're going to be successful. Um, We hear this over and over from the women that we interview, you know, identify that thing that makes you super excited that you would get up and do it for free, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but don't get paid. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... And that's where you're going to have the innovation. That's where you're going to have the creativity. That's where you're going to have the resiliency uh, to face the obstacles that you're going to have in terms of, you know, any endeavor that you want to pursue. So find that thing that is just like, yeah, that's it. That's why I'm here. That's why I want to do it. I was at... um a filming yesterday at the Institute on Aging. And it was about a female scientist, Marion Diamond. And she was the person who discovered brain plasticity. And she talked about the brain and the aging brain, the growing brain, and how important it is to have five factors in your life to make sure that you're maintaining brain growth and brain plasticity. Exercise, diet, challenge, newness, and love. Hmm. I want to encourage each of you to do all of those things and to reach out to the community around you. Get support. Get loved. 
get nurturance. She talked a lot about communities that she helped to create in various parts of the world where children and adults were nurtured where they were growth-oriented environments, where they were stimulated, where they were supported. As women, we thrive on oxytocin. And it's important that you, if you've got something going on, if you've got this passion that you want to pursue, if you're experiencing some kind of challenge, get involved with a group of women or go to your best friend. Make sure that you get a hug. Make sure that you get that encouragement. Make sure that you get that go girl. You can do this because that's what we need in order to be successful is we need to believe in ourselves and we need other people to believe in us too. Mm. On that note, I just want yes. I just wanted to add one thing to this. Okay. I think in terms of pay raises, in terms of starting your own company, all of that, you also have to do your homework and be prepared to come and negotiate and know your value and your worth. And in September, Women in Big Data, we're starting a series on this. In particular, um, CARTA did a study, are you familiar with this, Mm -hmm. about how uh, women are grossly, grossly underpaid in the equity gap. And so we've got the person who did the study coming uh, to our talk to kick off this series. So show up. It doesn't cost anything. And just to piggyback on that, uh, as I mentioned, um, I'm on the board of the Friends of the Commission on the Status of Women, and they are doing a series of salary negotiation workshops. So you should visit um, the website, the Friends of the Commission on the Status of Women, uh, to get the schedule of the workshops. There's a goal of uh, training 20,000 women in the San Francisco area by 2020. So. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, I got to do a shameless plug for the women that we've interviewed on careergirls.org. Um, these women are extraordinary. And while they're talking to a young cohort, I know every time I do a video shoot, I learn tons about uh, any number of subjects. Wonderful. Um, I just wanted to say on the love note, I truly love you women. You are such badasses. I've had so much fun. Thank you for agreeing to come on this journey of an afternoon with me. And thank you so much for coming to the first ever Executive Women's Forum here at the Commonwealth Club. Now that we have had this many people and so many robust questions, we will definitely be doing this again. Um, So thank you so much. And on that note, I would like Mags to tell us about her rebel mom sleepover weekend (laughs) as the final juicy tidbit. Sure. I'm doing a rebel mom slumber party in September up in Sonoma. (laughs) There's going to be a body positive pool party. There's going to be hair parading. There's going to be an Instagram brunch. There's going to be sleep yoga. We're all going to get together, get connected, heal ourselves and move forward so that we can power up each other. Yep. Thank you so much for coming. Coming, everyone. Congratulations. Congratulations.